from WBEZ Chicago and your inner child. This is Pleasure Town. Around the turn of the last century, a group of folk built their dream. A town where happiness was the main objective. But, as history has shown, all great epics are built on failure. So stir the fire and join us as we come to terms with Pleasure Town. Hey, Cy, do you remember dreaming? You mean like hopes and aspirations? No, you dummy. I mean like sleeping. I'm sorry to say that the fantasy of sleep is but a flicker in my past. Well, I do. Only one dream, actually. But it's a damn good one. I'm back in Mississippi. In fact, I never left. I've got a cute little wife, and she's got a cute little sister. We all live together in a big house with a porch that wraps around the back. We have no need for work because we're rich. And we just spend our days laughing and drinking. I'm quite surprised you've been able to hold on to that. Pleasure Town dominates my memory. Well, I guess people tend to hold tight to their fantasies. The more their waking lives become failure. in, and our egos were strangling our vision. We had become obstinate foes, and each step towards this petty victory was leading our town to the edge of a cliff. These men lay claim to opposing ideas about the direction of this town. They further claim that their ideas are of the utmost importance to the fate of this place and that the residents of Pleasure Town stand at some kind of fork in the road, one branch leading to fruitful prosperity and the other leading us into ruin. These would-be leaders cannot reconcile and lack the spine for bloodshed, so they have imposed upon me to oversee this debate. Speaking for myself, I know men drink in times of feast and in times of famine. When they rejoice and when they know sorrow, so a tavern keeper need never concern himself with the direction things take. I am as impartial as it is possible to be. Since I know for a fact the outcome of these proceedings don't concern me in the slightest. If you reckon the choices anybody makes will change a goddamn thing, that they can help you cheat death or escape this empire of dust, then you listen well to these men, and you throw your lot in with the one you think least wrong. I'll be here to sling drinks whatever you decide, and to keep these gents to time. First, I guess, is Claude, who claims living for today is somehow superior. Let me pose a question to y'all. If I made you milk a dozen heads of cattle, and I offer to pay you tomorrow or today, which offer would you take? (laughs) Well, of course, any man with more than sawdust for brains would ask for his wage today. If I showed up at your doorstep with a bottle of the finest bourbon, and I asked you if you'd like a sip tomorrow or today, 
Why won't you take a swig? <laughs> Naturally, you think I'd be a trifling fool as you snatch that bottle from my hand. And if I said happiness is either just beyond that hill or right under your whiskers, where would you look first? You damn well know the answer. Gentlemen and ladies, happiness is right here, right now, today. You're standing in the finest, freest town that man has ever known. We are the success where our forefathers failed. We are the home of the brave among a sea of cowards. America was meant to be a land of opportunity, but all I've seen of it is misfortune. That's why I created Pleasure Town, to finish the job others couldn't, constructing my vision of heaven on earth because, damn it, heaven is a promise fulfilled the day after life. And I sure as hell got a lot of living to do today. Now my compatriot, old sad-eyed Cyrus over here, thinks that we should be breaking our backs for our bread and thanking the good Lord when we finally get our crumbs. He thinks that temperance is a virtue, which if you ask me, is as silly as a mule riding a bicycle. Temperance is weak. Self-restraint is castration for the soul. You do yourself an injustice by holding back. You do God an injustice. You are given this body with all its powers of sensation as a gift. And Cy, that old dog, wants you to throw that gift right back in Jehovah's face. He wants you to say, thanks God, but it's all boring books and bland porridge for me. Just look at him, that mouse of a man. Look into his eyes, you'll see there ain't no fire. There ain't even an ember, just gears, cold metal. Grinding, thinking, and planning. Always fretting about the next day at the expense of the present. When I started this town, I knew there'd be naysayers. I knew there'd be troubles. What society doesn't have its share of strife? But no matter how low we might have sunk at times, we've always pulled ourselves out of the mud. Didn't take no effort. You just envision the life you want. And if it don't turn out that way, then you didn't want it bad enough. And I can tell, you people want it bad. You want a thrill, an adventure. Life is a journey to you, one to be enjoyed, to be drunk and eaten up, undressed and caressed. You want all the pleasures that existence has to offer. And you shudder at the thought of the drudgery that is the life of the common man. By being a part of Pleasure Town, you are part of an elite club. A band of visionaries who see the truth behind the fog of lies blown into our faces by our parents, our teachers, the leaders that ruled over our former lives. I know this to be true because you all have told me so. Why, just the other day, I was strolling past the square when I feel a tug on my pant leg. I look down and I see the sweet, smiling face of Miss Ellie Sue. So I bend down on my knee, because as the father of Pleasure Town, I feel as if I'm the father of all Pleasure Town's children. And Miss Ellie Sue, she says to me, Mr. Claude, sir, when I grow up, 
I want to work at that cat house just like my mama. And I want to buy me a big old house and a big old wardrobe, and I'm going to fill that wardrobe with the prettiest dresses. And I'm going to do it all with my own money, and ain't no man going to do nothing for me, no how. And I tell Miss Ellie Sue that if she lived anywhere else, they'd give her a switch and cross her behind for talking like that. Tell her she's got to be reserved, proper, do things by the book, so she'll fetch herself a fancy husband tomorrow. But I say to Miss Ellie Sue, not here. Here, you make up your own rules, and you live by them, today. That's all you got. That's all you'll ever have. She just beamed at me, gave me a peck on the cheek, and skipped away to have her fun with the other kids. Because even a child knows. You got to make the most of it today. I'm not a young man anymore. Yesterday was long ago. I don't know how many more tomorrows I have in me. As you get older, today holds a greater importance. You stop dreaming. Because your dreams either came true or were crushed under the wheels of time. I know a lot of you feel the same way as I do. I've known many of you for most of your lives. You're getting tired. You're getting old. Paradise ain't nothing but the simple things. Glass of cold tea on a hot day. Moment of serenity amid the chaos of life. These things don't happen in the future. They happen now. And you've got to recognize what you've got right now. Or else you'll never realize true happiness. You've got to live in the moment. You've got to live for today. And there it is. If you're swayed by that, I can't imagine why. But neither can I see Cyrus changing anybody's mind with whatever he's about to say. His claim is that we need to focus on tomorrow, even though it may never come. I, uh, I never lack my father. This is not a surprising confession, nor is it an uncommon feeling. The Pleasure Town is filled with the children of broken fathers. They were hard men, or, or weak, or useless, or violent. My father was selfish. He was a man of vision, a very specific vision. He believed his life was to dominate the land, break it and tame it and make it his servant. Only thing was, he couldn't do this on his own. His vision required more work than one man could handle. So he did what most men do when their legacy requires assistance. He grew children and conscripted them into his dream. But the thing about dreams is only one person can. Only one. I, uh... It's not a good sign when you're supposed to convince a whole crowd of something and you're not even convincing yourself. <laughs> Claude is right. My fire has died. It's been out for some time. 
I'm really not sure what I'm doing up here. It doesn't make much sense if you think about it. The whole point of this infantile tussle is to see if we as a people would rather look to the future or remain ever in the present. And, And if you look around, you'll see that less than half the town has showed up. Your absent friends and neighbors couldn't be bothered to take a single evening to discuss our future, which means they've already cast their vote for today. So, this stands to reason that you who have gathered here are probably leaning to my side. But the thing is, my opponent, and it saddens me that our relationship is now defined by our disagreement, My opponent is quite the salesman. So even if you walked in thinking you'd vote for tomorrow, you just might leave with your ballot marked today. Futility is a sickening feeling, friends. You find yourself on the constant verge of vomit. But I'm not here to complain. Nor, it seems, am I here to win. So why am I here? I guess, to apologize. That's all it's left to do. First, to you, friends and fellow denizens of Pleasure Town. I understand your actions and choices are your own, but still I feel a responsibility for forcing this broken promise upon you. This was supposed to be a retreat, a refuge. We have crumbled into the self-same ruin we all ran from. Next, to Claude. We would not be here, antlers locked, me with my tears, you with your exhausted patience, if I had not shared that very first drink with you. Although you believe that we were already of one mind before we met, I am convinced that I infected you with my delusions of perfection. And finally, The last and greatest apology goes to my father. I have resented him because I was not given a say in the life that was handed to me. Of course, none of us got to choose where and to whom we were born. But but as I grew, I learned that my father used to live in California, in a town half a day's journey from the ocean. When he would talk about it, a slight smile would form on his face. Not that smiles were rare, he smiled all the time, but but this smile was different. This was a smile etched by the salty breeze from the beach, from the sun-warm sand on the shore. And each time I saw that smile, I cursed my father for ever leaving that place for forcing his children to only know of it through his words, not our own eyes. All we had to gaze upon was a field lousy with rock and a haphazard cabin. I never understood why he would leave California, a place so obviously dear to him travel halfway across the country and sink himself into a life that promised far more sweat than it ever would fruit. That is, I never understood it until last night. And that's my apology to him, my father, 
I'm sorry it took me so long to understand you. Turns out there's a lot more of him in me than I would have ever imagined. My dad loved that beach. It was a joy to him. But that joy, potent though it was, couldn't sustain him. And that stronger joy, it only came through pouring his sweat into the soil. Time, well, it held the joy at a distance. And the more he worked, the more he built, the more that joy came unto him. I've got to guess we're all like that. Today is sweet and warm, but it will not fill you. And the life of today's will hollow you out. And I'd be the happiest man alive if that guess is wrong. I truly would. I meant now to put it to you all, you citizens of Pleasure Town. You think on what Claude and Cyrus have had to say today. You cast your lot with whatever fool notion strikes you best. You all pretend it'll make a lick of difference. And I'll be over at the bar serving whiskey either way. Turn in a moment. Pleasure Town was our heritage, but we were too busy squabbling to consider successors. And frankly, I wasn't sure it was an inheritance anyone would want. I like Tarzan. Wild and strong, but with know-how and a lot of charm. My friend Mel's more like Tom Swift. I used to think about Tarzan when Papa sent me down into the crawl space to set traps and hunt what he said were mice. They were rats. I was the only one small enough to get around down there, to hammer blocks of wood into place under holes in the floor so the mice wouldn't get into the house. My older brother, Davy, he never got made to hunt mice in the crawl space. He caught the flu when he was the age I am now. He's buried in the yard in a well-kept stretch surrounded by tall grass. 
His stone is wide and white and simple. It's the kind I want when I go. Papa used to say I should look up to my brother. I keep the grass down around his stone so we can see it from the house. If I didn't, we'd still know where it was by the tree that grows up behind it. It's a good climbing tree and pretty besides. Papa can't hardly tell the difference between what's beautiful and what used to be beautiful. All the furniture and junk in our house was pretty once. Pretty maybe when Mama bought it, but it's all beaten to hell now. Sticky and gritty with smoke and dust. He looks at things and sees everything they were, not what they are now. Tonight, Papa and his chums were dancing and singing and smoking since before supper. They pound on the floors with their boots as they dance, making Mama's bric-a-brac shake and fall over. They dance to the songs they sing themselves, or to the sounds of the stoop musicians up the street aways. Now Papa and his chums are all laid out in the living room, drinking mushroom tea and laughing at each other. They don't hardly notice when I go to my room and lock my door. That makes it easy to sneak out my window, drop into the weeds, and meet Mel out by the street. She's got her knapsack and high boots on, and she hasn't washed her face in a bit, so she's smudged with dirt. I'm in my overalls, with my shoes slung over my shoulder by their laces. I brought her toy airplane with me, too, to give it back. One wheel's come off. It broke. Why? That's a stupid question. Doesn't make sense. Why? Because things break. They just break. You mean how? How did it break? I was playing with it, and it came in for a rough landing, and it broke. That's how. It doesn't matter anyway. You can keep it. I'm sorry. Mel shrugs and waves for me to follow as she goes clomping up the road in her boots. She doesn't seem mad, but she doesn't say much either. Papa says she's too serious for her age, and she's a year younger than me. It's dusk now, and fireflies are coming out. It's getting harder to see town for all the shadows. But where there's light, from the lamps and the windows and the bright and sky, still, things almost glow. It's a pretty time, I think. I tuck Mel's plane into the pocket across my front, follow her up the street. Her bag's loaded up, full of junk she knows to find use for. That's Mel. She doesn't just see what a thing is. She sees where it's headed, what it will be, if she can get her hands on it. Folks are playing their guitars and trumpets on stoops up and down the street, far enough apart that it doesn't become what Papa calls one noise. The neighborhood dogs roam around looking for scraps. Mel pats one as our paths cross, but the dogs are headed towards the town square. That's where folks are tonight. Town meeting, Papa said. Does your mama know you're out tonight? She's down at the town square with the others. Are we headed to the wishing well tonight? I got a penny for it. Lay your own chores first. Hey, Mel, have you heard of sharks that make it up the Mississippi? I hear sometimes they get as far as Missouri swimming upstream from New Orleans. No one knows if they're lost or if they're looking for something, got the scent of something, pushing upstream just because or what. Folks only find out about them when they take a bite out of some swimmers someplace. Maybe St. Louis, where no one expects sharks, you know? Huh, you don't say. Hey, Mel, where are we going? She's walking us away from the town square, down past a few taverns and saloons, towards the residences on the edge of town. She stops in front of one saloon, points above the door. There, look. 
It's a buck's head mounted under the saloon's eaves. Its antlers are cut to fit between the door and the roof. The buck is sort of yellow, stained by smoke and rain, I guess. It used to be white, a white stag. We gonna see the white deer tonight? The ones that dwell on the edge of town? I never seen them. They only come out at dusk, and we could never get home in time from out there, but if tonight's the night, then, oh boy. That's the plan. Over in the town square, I hear gunshots pop in the air. Pistols fired up in the air, all together, all sort of at once. They sound different than what my papa would call gunplay. It's less scary, maybe because we hear it so much. Should hurry, though. The houses near the far edge of town are farther apart than they are near home. Some of them have fences. Some of them just have stretches of weeds between them. Mel leads us off the brick lane into the knee-high grass between a couple of houses to a line of apple trees. I look around and figure that we're in the yard of a big old house with boards over the windows and big burnt blotches like black eyes. The back door of the house is wide open behind a loose porch door swinging in the wind. This time of night, I can't see inside the house. It's like a cave. I imagine the rats have the run of that place. When I look back, Mel's picking apples. Lots of apples. Off the trees and stuffing them in a burlap sack. That sure is a lot of apples. She doesn't look at me. She puts another apple in the sack, moves the sack up and down to test its weight, adds another apple, and then ties the burlap into a knot. She nods to herself and starts off toward the road, taking big, tall steps through the grass. I hear a bang, sort of like the pistols before, but just one. The sound of a single shot, all lonesome-like. Sounds different from the fracas in the town square. It has time to echo, I guess, before some dog starts barking about it. I don't know where that shot was shot, but I see Mel isn't looking for it like I am. She's pressing on ahead, walking quick like now. We're not too far from the well now, but we turn off the street away from the well and head toward a stretch of stoops where folks sit in their rockers on their porches and listen to the brass horns play up the block. What do you think whales drink, Mel? Do you think they just drink up the ocean? She don't answer. She's walking up the gravel drive of one house to a fella reading on his porch. She waves and he slips his book under his chair to prop it up. The book's by Edith Warden, whoever that is. Hello, little lady. Is tonight the night? Mel waves and nods. She digs around in her knapsack and pulls out a couple of handsome curved tobacco pipes. She holds one out in each hand for the fellow to look at them. One is the color of the grandfather clock in my house. The other's almost red. Good ones, yeah. I'd like this one, the red one. This seems like a good trade. Here you go, little lady. The fella hands Mel a folded envelope of tobacco strands. She puts the tobacco and the other pipe into her knapsack. I tell you what, though, miss. I've got some matches and a nickel for you. If you do me one more favor. And what's that? Merle over there, playing that trombone. He took that sheet music from a friend, Echo. Go and nab it back for me. It'll make Merle real mad. <laughs> yes. Mel looks over her shoulder, looks right past me, at Merle and his trombone. Merle's a lanky black man with salt in his hair. He looks pretty happy to be playing his trombone. Two nickels. You drive a hard bargain, little lady, but all right. Two nickels. 
Mel and I loop around, cross the street, and crouch in the weeds near the trombone player. The weeds run right up to his porch, and he's got a stack of sheet music pinned under a rock on a wooden chair next to him. Maybe if I distract him, you can sneak up and grab the sheets. I turn to look at Mel and find just weeds. She's walking right through the dandelions up to Merle's porch. He angles just a bit to face her, but keeps right on playing. He sort of nods hello. Mel waves. She scoops up the rock on the sheet music, takes the whole stack of paper in hand, sets the rock back down, and heads back across the street to the reader fella. As I hustle to catch up with her, I hear Merle's music stop. The reader fella's belly laughing in his rocking chair. <laughs> with the trombone stopped, his laugh echoes down the street. <laughs> Mel holds the sheet music to her chest with one hand, sticks the other one out for her money. The reader fella wipes his eye and drops a box of matches on her palm. She gives him the sheet music and turns around. I go to follow her, getting ready to run as Merle comes up to the reader fella. Merle ignores us. He walks right up to the reader fella and they start yelling at each other. Don't look back. Mel and I don't talk again until we get to the wishing well in the park near the railroad tracks. A firefly hovers between us, but refuses to light. I dig in my pocket and pull out a gumball and a penny. Mel's broken plane rests against my belly, still. I put the gum back and turn the penny around in my hands. I'm thinking up a wish. She shakes her head, slips open the matchbox, and shakes out the nickels that are in there with the matches. Here, use this. Are you sure? Yes. What are we wishing for? Wish big. She holds her nickel out over the well's mouth. So do I. Except I don't know how big to wish. What's a nickel's wish look like? Could I wish to get Mama back? Or Davy? Or Papa? I don't know what to wish for. Wish for safe travels. Wish for the train to be on time. Wish for a good long run. I look at her. She looks at me. Supposed to do what we want. A firefly lights right near my nose. We drop our nickels and watch them fall. We walk through fireflies towards the railroad tracks. We walk along the railway until we hear the freighter coming. We hide in the grass. We time our move. We each grab a rusted rung and pull ourselves up into the same empty car with open doors. Out one side, we see the lights of town. Hardly lights at all next to the stars up above. Out the other side, we see a wide stretch of grass dotted with deer. Deer led by a tall stag with antlers like a winter tree. Deer almost shiny in the moonlight. Almost. You know, Sai? Yeah? I can't recall if I had any kids in my dream. Do you feel their absence? How do you mean? Well, if you did dream of kids, there'd, there'd be an absence, a hole where they once were. There is something missing. Then take comfort in that feeling. Hello, 
Hello, everyone. This is Aaron. And this is Keith. As always, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Your ears uh, make this whole thing worthwhile, and we really appreciate you tuning in, downloading, and all the other things that you do to access this episode. If you like what you heard, we would love it if you visited us on iTunes and gave us a few stars and a review. Also, you can find us on Facebook. You just search for Pleasure Town on there. You'll find us there, as well as Twitter. Our handle is at Pleasure Town OK. That's right. And we've got a website as well, PleasureTownShow.com. There you can dive in uh, more about the episodes. You can enter in our current writing contest. We're looking for episodes to uh, post after this season ends. Anywhere from flash fiction to an entire episode, just uh, click on Join the Story. Of course, we're also looking for last names uh, for Claude and Cyrus as well. And that first half of this episode that you just heard, the debate between Claude and Cyrus, is actually inspired by a real show that's uh, here in Chicago and a few other cities called Right Club. Aaron, if you want to tell them a little bit about Right Club. Absolutely. Right Club is an amazing show. It's uh, tagged as literature as blood sport. Uh, They've got shows in Chicago, Atlanta, L.A., and San Francisco. It's an amazing night of literature. But it's a show that opposes two different elements like now versus later, time versus space. Right. (laughs) It's two different ideas. Uh, Writers have seven minutes to present their idea and the audience votes. Uh, You can go out to writeclubrules.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And check out more about the show. Bye, everyone. Bye. Pleasure Town is written and produced by Keith Ecker and Aaron Cahill. This episode featured a story by Will Hindmarch and was performed by Ian Belknap, Ada Gray, Kelly Krieghauser, and Claude Cunningham. Direction and sound design by Joe Dassault with assistance by Iris Lynn and Patrick Burns. Our interns are me, Emily Modaf, and Allison Agumakun. Original music was composed and performed by River Rising's Megan Diger and Tim Hazen and engineered by Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Pleasure Town is a part of the WBEZ Podcast Network. Discover more excellent shows at wbez.org slash podcasts. Pleasure Town is an ever-growing interactive narrative which relies on your creativity, your imagination, and especially your voice to expand the legend. Find out how you can join the story at wbez.org slash pleasure town. Pleasure Town.